0: So at almost every season of our lives, any one of us, doesn't matter who we are, we're either walking in our own suffering or we are walking alongside those who are suffering. And that's true pretty much any season of our life that we're going through. It's possible at times to be sheltered from suffering for a little while, but eventually suffering becomes a part of our lives, trials become a part of our life in some form, and as we talked about last week, it might arise from the suffering in our lives, might arise from family dysfunction and sin and discord, it might arise from envy and jealousy, it could be abuse, it could be bitterness, repressed memories and events that are long buried but finally catch up to us and our family, that could be the source. Um, it could come from outside influences, it could be illness, it could be um, the way people have treated us, it could be financial crisis, it might be the struggles of someone that we're close to. But most often in our life, suffering and struggle comes upon us unexpectedly and from consequences beyond our control. And there's no question as we're looking and reading through and rereading the story of Joseph here, that the story of Joseph is written as a story of suffering. And while it is revealing for us the, the overarching narrative of God, because we see that as well, the, the story that God is telling in terms of his covenant, covenant and in terms of his people and the divine plan that he has to fulfill the promises made to Abraham and Isaac through Joseph, it is at the same time still a very human narrative of historical family dysfunction and the consequences of sin in the life of Joseph. This is very real story of suffering in a family, specifically in the life of Joseph. And we looked at Joseph's family last week and where he came from, and his heritage, and and did some homework this week, probably in our small groups, uh, on our own families. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look more closely at our main protagonist. We're going to look more closely at Joseph, how he suffered, and his response to suffering. And so we're going to pick up again with Joseph, uh, freshly assaulted by his brothers, uh, and thrown into a dry cistern to die. This is where he's at. In Genesis 37, uh, 23 to 25, we read, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And so the first thing we, we take here is just to acknowledge that while Joseph was in the pit, he's suffering. He's not just mildly annoyed or he's not just calmly unconcerned because he was trusting so faithfully in God that his dreams were going to come true, right? And if if we only have a simple snapshot of Joseph from Sunday school or if you read the whole story, the kind of overarching picture you get of Joseph is just that he was this man carried along by the sovereignty of God and that he trusted in God uh, through his life and his, you know, things worked out for Joseph. And so you might at times think that oh Joseph is like this super christian right he's this super godly man who no matter what was happening to him you know he was always calm and he was always fine because he just trusted god so fully that god loved him and was going to care for him but that's not what is going on in Joseph's life okay when his brothers assault him and you know beat him up and throw him in a pit he is in despair joseph is terrified and he is desperate and we get a one sentence picture of this reality of Joseph in the pit actually near the end of the story when the brothers finally meet Joseph again in Egypt and everything seems to be going against them in their interactions with this you know official in Egypt who they don't recognize they're speaking amongst themselves while they're struggling to get grain for their family and they say in Genesis 42:21 they said to one another in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Okay, so we don't see it in Genesis 37. Okay, but in Genesis 42, as the brothers recollect this time, we realize Joseph was begging them from the pit. He was in the distress of his soul over what was happening with his brothers. He was fearing for his life. He had no idea that he was just going to be left to starve or they were going to kill him or what was going to happen. And so Joseph, make no mistake here, understands suffering. He understands distress. He's not just coolly floating through this saying, oh, God's going to take care of everything. I'm fine. He's in despair. His brothers are eating a picnic while he is begging them from the pit. And they're just having their lunch. I mean, you just can't imagine the despair that Joseph is feeling while his own brothers care so little of him and his struggle and his suffering. He is not immune to fear and doubt and distress. Even men of God, even children of God who know God and have promises from God, even in the form of dreams that were specifically for them about God's plan for their life, even they are not immune from fear and doubt and distress. And even as followers of God, we will experience these emotions in our suffering. And we can even just consider the phrase distress of his soul that is used there as it relates even to Jesus as he faces his cross. He confesses in John twelve twenty seven, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Even Jesus in his suffering is in distress in his soul. So... In this understanding of how we as Christians go through suffering, understand, brothers and sisters, it is not uncommon for you to have doubt and distress and despair and tears and crying. That's normal. You're not a bad Christian because you don't stride through every suffering with full confidence in God that He's going to rescue you immediately. Joseph didn't do it. Jesus didn't do it. Suffering is distressing it's hard, and distress in some measure accompanies our suffering, even for believers. But let's continue. Genesis thirty-seven twenty-six to 28 says, Then Judah, the oldest brother, said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother of our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite." traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. And so Judah here, the the eldest brother, thinks about what Reuben had said earlier and he decides he doesn't want Joseph's blood on his hands and he'd rather have the money and so they sell him to the Ishmaelite slavers. Midianites are a tribe of Ishmael and Ishmael should be ringing bells Ishmael, Ishmaelites, Ishmael would be Isaac's half-brother. He was the result of Abraham sleeping with his wife's servant instead of waiting for God's promise through Sarah. And so, yes, this generational sin just keeps coming back to bite this family because now Joseph is sold to Ishmaelites, (laughs) who are the tribe of his half-great-great-great-great-grandfather's son. And you can imagine here, again, the thoughts of Joseph The brothers come and pull him out of the pit and he's perhaps hoping that they've changed their mind and that they are going to rescue him anyway, but as they pull him out of the pit, instead they put an iron collar on him. You'll see that in your homework this week in your handout. In Psalm 105 it says he was taken to Egypt in iron and they chain him to a camel. And so here he is, 17 years old, heading to Egypt and there is not going to be any rescue party. There is not going to be any reunion with his family and his father now for the next 22 years. For Joseph. And Joseph can't even know that. All he knows is is he's going to Egypt as a slave. So Joseph is suffering. This is suffering. Thrown in a pit, threatened with death, sold as a slave. He's in distress. And for most people, this would be enough. If Joseph's story was only his own story, that would probably be the end of it, right? But this is also God's story, and God is always telling His own story in the story in the lives of His people. And so, Joseph's story—we're we, following Joseph's story at the human level, and we're thinking, "This is it. This is the end of Joseph. There, there is no coming back from this, right? I mean, this is the end of his story, essentially." But what we do know is that God is also telling his story in the lives of his people. And so this is not the end of Joseph's story. This is where you think Joseph's story would end. This is where his brothers thought that his story ended, right? They said, we'll see what becomes of this dreamer. Judah thought, this is it. We're never going to see this guy again. He's out of our hair. We're done with this. But God's story is being written on Joseph's story. Suffering on its own can ruin you. Suffering... By yourself, on your own, could be the end of your story. But suffering with God's love transforms you. And so what we see is that was God was with Joseph in his suffering. Is God's love with Joseph? It doesn't seem like it when we're reading here. It doesn't seem like it to Joseph even. It might not seem like it to you today. In, in whatever pit you're in, or whatever slavery you're in, or whatever distress you're in, it might not seem that God's love is with you. You may feel overpowered in the situation that you're in. But let's keep reading here in Joseph's story. And just parenthetically here, I'm just going to touch on it for now. Uh, if you go to chapter 38, it then tells us the story of this eldest brother, Judah. And we're not going to get into it just yet. But just for clarity, I'll point out that uh, chapter 38 regards the eldest son and it takes place during the years that Joseph is in Egypt. There's He has 13 years before he... uh becomes royalty, he's 30 years of age when he gets into Pharaoh's court, then there's seven years of plenty, and then he saw his brothers in the second year of famine. So it's 22 years transpire. And during this time, we get this little snapshot of Judah's life, of Judah's sin with Tamar. And you might contrast that with Joseph's refusal of Potiphar's wife. And yet in that sin of Judah, it leads to Christ through this illegitimate, so to speak, son-twin Perez. Perez, if you look in Matthew 1.3, is in the lineage of Christ. And so it's through the line of Judah that we're going to get to the kings, David, and then to Jesus. But it's even through his sin with Tamar that Jesus, the line of David, comes about. And so Judah is an important lineage, and so this chapter just keeps us up to speed on what's going on in the family line of Jesus at the same time as it's telling the story of what's happening with Joseph and as a slave and a prisoner and in the palace. But we're, we're sticking with Joseph today, but if you're reading along there, I just wanted to explain to you what was going on in chapter 38. So we pick up the story here with Joseph now. He's chained to a camel marching to Egypt, and Genesis 39 says... Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands." And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so as the story returns from Judah back to Joseph, we should notice that the text takes a surprising turn. I mean, we left Joseph in a pit, going to be murdered maybe left to starve, sold into slavery, heading to Egypt. And now the story narrative changes dramatically. There's two recurring themes here in the time that Joseph is in Potiphar's house. And then those themes come up again when he's thrown into a pit again, into prison. Literally a pit in Hebrew. He's, he's pitted again. And, and, and there's two recurring themes. And you probably picked up on them there in verse 2 and 3 and in 21 and 23, if you were to read further. It says the Lord was with him in verse 2. And then it says the Lord was with him, was with Joseph, and showed steadfast love later on in verses 21. And, and the Lord was with him in verse 3. And the Lord was with him in verse 23 later on in the chapter. So the, the first theme is that the Lord was with Joseph. That during this time he was not abandoned, God was with him the whole time. And then the second theme is, is that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper. Whatever he did, the Lord made succeed. These phrases are repeated over and over again in this chapter. And the text says, God is with Joseph. And in fact, if you prefer to have Scripture interpret Scripture here, which you always should, if you if you turn in your Bibles or click there, whatever you want to later, in, in, in Acts chapter 7, we would find that 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after this had all transpired, that this is exactly the lesson that God has intended for His people to remember. Because... Stephen, as he is about to be stoned on trial before the chief priests, he gives an account of the history of Israel for him. And when he gets to Joseph, he says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor. What was the enduring lesson that God wanted his people to remember? Stephen tells us in one sentence. This is what you were supposed to remember about Joseph. God was with him and gave him favor and rescued him. This is what you're supposed to get out of this chapter, right? If it's if Stephen got it out of it, I'm going to say that that's what we're supposed to get out of it, that, that God is with Joseph. So suffering on its own can ruin you, but suffering with God's love transforms you. And God's love was with Joseph even in the suffering, even in the despair. It doesn't look like it on the surface, but God is working in Joseph's life even in his trials, So you might ask, how is God then transforming Joseph? What is happening here in Joseph's life? How is God using this suffering? Why does it have to happen this way? Well, there's at least three ways that God is using and transforming Joseph. First of all, Joseph is developing into a man of integrity. He's being refined. The seeds of Joseph's integrity were always there from the beginning. And you remember, at the very beginning, when he was out in the fields with his brothers, he came home and he he gave a bad account of them. And, like, nobody likes a tattletale. Nobody likes a squealer. But Joseph, this is the seeds of his integrity. He knew what was going on in the fields was not good, and he came back, and he just had to tell Dad. He's like, Dad, this this is what's going on. I know it's not right. You just need to know this is what we're doing out in the fields, and, and this is what my brothers are doing. And from Joseph's point of view, that's his integrity. He could not live in the deception of his father and what was going on out in the fields with his brothers. He explains his dreams... And says, this is what the word of God is, this is what my visions are, even though he probably knows what the results might be with his brothers, right? He obeys his father without question, going out to his brothers. And even though he's influenced by his father, and even though he's outnumbered and overpowered by his brothers, Joseph suffers despite of his integrity, And it's his his integrity that's tested and refined and purified in his suffering. As Joseph suffers, he is being tested and his integrity is being refined in this process because he's going to need it in the years to come. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, we see this in a New Testament context. Peter says to the believers, he says, In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God is using trial, God is using despair, God is using suffering in Joseph's life to refine him, to refine his integrity and many other characters. And Joseph, in a way, is a reflection of Job, who suffered and yet did not curse God. Right? Suffering with integrity proves faithfulness. Not suffering without sorrow, not suffering without despair, not suffering without doubt. There clearly was sorrow. There clearly was distress. It's not suffering without sorrow, but it's suffering with God. You're not going to suffer without despair, but you can suffer with God and suffering with God brings transformation. Now, do we do this in our suffering? Do we do this in our circumstances? Do we bring the Lord into whatever it is that we do, as Joseph did with Potiphar? So Potiphar's whole household was blessed on behalf of Joseph. In our situations where we're in suffering, where we're in trial, where we're not exactly in the circumstances we want to be in our life, do we bring God in with us? Is God there with us and bringing the blessing of God with us so that we're a blessing to those we serve in the situation that we're in, even in our suffering? Or what about our refinement? If we were in Joseph's place, would we give ourselves to serving an Egyptian task manner as well as Joseph did? Joseph was clearly a very good slave. He served Potiphar exceptionally well in his distress. Would we do that? Or would we say, what am I doing here? Why am I working as a slave? God, why have you got me in this situation? You had dreams for me that people were going to be bowing to me, and now I'm a slave. God, where are you? I don't understand why I'm in this situation. Wouldn't that be our temptation? That would be my temptation, right? If I had a dream from God that I was going to somehow have people bowing to me and I was going to be some big shot in his kingdom, and then I'm an Egyptian, a slave to an Egyptian, would I serve that Egyptian well, or would I grumble and complain and do the bare minimum? I mean, that would be my temptation. We complain when we're getting paid a few percent less than was expected in our union's collective bargaining agreement, right? I mean, that's cause for distress for us let alone complain about being actual slaves in a foreign land but godliness with contentment is great gain it says in 1st timothy 6 and we sometimes think to ourselves i could be so useful to god if only this would happen or if i was in these circumstances i could do so much for the kingdom and god could use me in such a powerful way if just if you know i had didn't have these financial troubles or if i had better opportunity or if i was better connected but But God most often uses those people who say, why not be used right now where I am here today? I can serve God in whatever situation I'm in now. I don't have to wait. And that was Joseph's heart. Joseph's like, I can serve now. I'm a slave in this Egyptian's household. Fine, I'll be the best slave I can be for the glory of God. And God was with Joseph. And God caused everything that Joseph did to succeed so that Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything in his household. All he worried about was the food that was on his plate and whether he was hungry or not. Joseph lived to the glory of God to see what God would do. In the house or out in the field, he worked wholeheartedly. He's a slave, but he's a blessed slave. And when Joseph worked with the Lord, the Lord was with him. Potiphar's household was also blessed. So give yourself to the task before you, to the situation God has you in, even if it's not ideal, even if it's distressing, even if it's suffering to you. Not with your eyes on a different opportunity or a different situation, but serving God where you are and seeing how God is going to transform your situation as you are faithful in the small things. Secondly, that the other thing that God is doing, not just refining Joseph's integrity and blessing Pharaoh's Potiphar's household, but, but God is equipping Joseph for what is to come. So Joseph had working with his father. He was managing his brothers to a certain extent. Then he's managing Potiphar's household and fields. God's not wasting any of Joseph's experiences. Joseph probably learned the Egyptian language as a slave and in prison here. He didn't know Egyptian when he first went down there, but he had time in Potiphar's household. He had time in prison. He could learn the language, right? He understood how to act in front of Egyptian officials through Potiphar's guests, Potiphar was high ranking in Pharaoh's court, and so Potiphar's guests would have been other Egyptian officials, and Joseph, as the head major domo of the household, would have had to know how to act in front of other Egyptian officials through his interaction. He learned to practice and exercise his faith in God, trusting that God would provide even in slavery. And so he got to exercise the muscles of his faith, saying, this doesn't look like what my dream is, God, but I am going to trust in you anyway and follow your word anyway, even in this situation. And it exercised his faith. Joseph trusted God. God trusted Joseph in small things and was trusted by God in small tasks to prepare for large tasks ahead. As it says in Luke sixteen ten, that we are to be found faithful in the small things so that we can be found faithful in greater things. And so this season of our life right now might be a struggle. I, I don't know what season you're in, but it might not be the ideal circumstance that you wanted. And this season in your life might be a struggle. The season in my life might be a struggle right now. It may seem much smaller than what you expected or what you hoped for. Maybe you don't have the job you wanted in the city that you hoped for. Maybe you're not having the impact that you expected. But God is not wasting this season in your life. God has you in this season for many good reasons. Joseph could not have known the reasons that God needed him to learn Egyptian and how to hobnob with Egyptian officials and how to manage resources well, in the house and in the field. But Joseph was learning all these things, not knowing God's story for him and how it was going to end. And so Joseph just had to be faithful in what God had him in, knowing and trusting that God had something else, another season coming. Trust God and be trustworthy in all that we do in preparation for what is to come. And so God was equipping Joseph for what is coming. Joseph didn't even know what it was. And then, thirdly, overarching all of this is God's sovereignty at work, guiding the outcome of Joseph's trials to accomplish more. And all you have to do is look at how all the different accidents add up into the end result for this family ending up in G- in, G- in Egypt, just as. Jesus, just as God promised to Abraham in the beginning, right? I called I called this title of this sermon "Suffering and Sovereignty," and we need to see that God is large and at work in everything that's happening in our life sovereignly. I mean, just look at the way God manages this entire storyline, the this, this string of accidents, right? Jacob says to Joseph, go see your brothers. But the brothers just happen to move on from where they were to a faraway place, farther from home. And Reuben just happens to intercede on behalf of Joseph. And Judah just happens to see these traders who were heading to Egypt, and the traders just happened to have the money to buy a slave and be willing to take a slave down to Egypt, and they were there on their way at the right time, and Potiphar just happened to need a slave who could you know help out in his house. right All these little accidents all just seem to line up just perfectly to get Joseph where God needs Joseph to be. Now how does the sovereignty of God work in that? Did God just wave his finger and make all these things happen kind of like against people's will? No. I mean, the Ishmaelites were just doing their business, right? They were just going about their trade the way they always do. They would have thought that they were acting in their own best interest in everything they were doing. Judah Judah was just thinking about his own wallet, right? He was just thinking, I'd rather have the money than the blood on my hands, right? He wasn't thinking that he was acting outside of his just own normal, even sinful motives. Potiphar just needed extra help. He wasn't doing anything different than just normally going down to the slave market and picking out a slave right? They would all say, if you stopped any one of them, they would all say, I was just acting on my own motives. I was just doing what I needed for me. It was completely selfish, right? I just I just did what I wanted to do that day. I was acting on my own purposes. And it goes on and on, Potiphar and his, an officer, Pharaoh, and his wife, and everything else. I mean, all the things that happened to get Joseph exactly where he is, the fact that that Potiphar is an official of Pharaoh, and so that if there was somebody that Potiphar was going to throw in jail, he would actually end up in the same jail as Pharaoh's servants. The scripture even draws attention to that. In Genesis 39:20. it says that they took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Well, isn't that convenient, right? So that Joseph actually ends up in the right prison. The sovereignty of God is written through all these things and nobody realizes that they're acting out of their own selfish motives and God is saying, I'll take that selfish motive, I'll take that sinful inclination, I'll take that slave trade, I'll take this wrongful imprisonment and I'm going to use it all for my purposes. That's the sovereignty of God acting in the lives of his people. It's all part of God's narrative, part of what he is accomplishing for himself. And Joseph is a part of God's covenant promise. Abraham's children will find their way into Egypt and they will somehow have a home made for them there. They will serve there for 400 years and they will leave with the riches of Egypt when they go. And it will all come to pass because God turns everything, even suffering, even trial, even despair, even crying and weeping in a pit and begging your brothers for an alternative solution. God will take that and He will use it to His purposes. Joseph has to understand that he's part of God's covenant promise. He's part of God's narrative. But you and I are part of God's new covenant too. This isn't just Old Testament stuff. This is right now stuff. There is a new covenant and a new promise. For those of us that know Christ Jesus, we are children of the new covenant because of Jesus' suffering. Jesus is betrayed by his brothers. And Jesus goes down into the pit. Jesus goes down into the grave. But God lifts him up out of that pit too victorious over death as a sign of god's promises coming true and the slavery is over and there is hope now in a new promised land and so we're part of a new covenant that god is enacting through his people now today god is writing his story on his new covenant people as well joseph also had his dreams and the dreams were the way in which god gave his word they were a promise whatever god spoke and gave visions of came to happen And so Joseph had God's promise in the form of his dreams. Joseph was part of God's covenant narrative, and we are. And Joseph had this word from God. He had this promise from God in his dreams. He had the word of God to live by. And we also have God's word. We have God's promise, not in dreams, but in his son and in his words. We have scripture. We're children of a better covenant and better promises. And I don't want us to miss this in the story of Joseph, that it is a picture of our lives. And so when we compare our suffering and our story and our trials to Joseph's trials, we also have to remember that we are part of God's covenant and we have God's promises and we have God's word just as Joseph was part of the covenant and Joseph had God's word. We have that as well. Hebrews 8.6 says it so perfectly as Scripture always interprets Scripture better than anybody else can. Hebrews 8.6 says, but as it is, Christ... Has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus mediates a better covenant, and it's enacted on better promises. Joseph had his covenant and his promise. We have a better covenant and better promises through Jesus Christ. And so when we consider the season that our life is in, we consider what God may be doing and we have our questions and we have our times of weeping and we have our times of despair and we say, God, I don't understand why I'm in this suffering. I don't understand what it is that you're doing. God is refining you. God is transforming you. God is preparing you. God is telling his story in your story. We don't know what the ending is, but it is a better covenant and a better promise and it's enacted through a better mediator who is Christ Jesus. That's what Hebrews is saying. And so you may be in a situation right now, and you can ask yourself in my despair, in my questioning, in my weeping, in my struggling, in my trial, is God with me? Because suffering on its own can ruin you, but suffering with God's love transforms you. And so are you bringing God into that situation? Is God with you in there with his love? Are you seeing the transforming? Are you seeing the refining? Are you seeing the teaching? Are you seeing the preparing that God is doing? And when I say that, again, it doesn't mean that we never feel discouraged or we never feel distressed or we never feel doubt. It does mean that we continue to walk and speak rightly before God and man. And next week we're going to see how Joseph continues to walk and act and speak rightly before God and man Despite his circumstances, his circumstances do not change his character or how he is to walk and speak, as so often happens with us, happens with me, right? When my circumstances change, my behavior changes, right? When things happen to me, all of a sudden I feel like I'm justified to act a certain way or speak a certain way that's not necessarily the most godly, but what... What this means is that when we're suffering, when we're in trial, it doesn't mean we don't feel discouraged or distressed or doubt, but it does mean we continue to walk and speak rightly before God and man. It does mean we continue to live and act for the glory of God in every circumstance. It does mean that we exercise our trust in God and know that He is refining us. God is preparing us. God is writing a larger story in our suffering, the same way that He was writing a larger story in Joseph's. And you might say, yeah, but I, you know, there's not going to be any Bible book written about me. Like, these are like really special people. They're not, you know, they're not me. My, my life is so small and inconsequential. Why would it matter? Hey, it's everybody. God is not just writing his story in one family anymore. It's not just about Judah and Joseph. It's not just about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just about David. It's not just about Solomon. It's about the whole family of God. All of us are now partakers in a better covenant. And so we take this time in our suffering. It does mean that we exercise our trust in God and know that he's refining and preparing and writing this larger story in our suffering. So even a situation caused by the conflict of others, even a situation that you're in where other people are oppressing you, other people are causing you distress, other people are hurting you, just as Joseph was harmed by his brothers, Even in those situations, are you continuing to walk rightly in those situations? Are you continuing to bring God into it? Are you continuing to act as a blessing to those around you the way that Joseph was a blessing in Potiphar's house? Do I think that Joseph didn't go to bed some nights as a slave, crying? Do you think that there weren't times when he was laying there in the servants' quarters wishing that he could see his dad again, his brothers again? that he was not grieved over the situation that he was in, that he was not weeping over the suffering that had come upon him, that he had no idea what was going to happen next. Absolutely, I believe Joseph was weeping. But then he got up in the morning, and he walked rightly, and he talked rightly, and he acted rightly, and he brought God and did everything for the glory of God. And God was with him. His love was with him. It says in verse 21, 39 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The steadfast love of God is with us in our suffering. Even like Joseph, it doesn't seem like it is. God is doing something, refining us, preparing us, writing his story in a way that we can't understand. The steadfast love of God is with us. So suffering on its own can ruin you, but suffering with God's love can transform you. Let's pray.